Rachel Kelly. I'm Kyle Thompson. And I'm Fraser Simons. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And as you can probably tell, we also have a guest this time as well. Um, so yeah, uh, Fraser, why don't you introduce yourselves to the to the audience? Hi, I'm Fraser. I am mostly known, I think, for writing and designing a game called The Veil, which is a cyberpunk powered by the apocalypse game, which will make no sense unless you understand what that means. <laughs> but it is a type of role-playing game that is mediocrely um, popular these days. <laughs> yeah. And I'm also writing another game and designing it called Hack the Planet, which is a climate fiction bash with cyberpunk. Yeah, so um, this is pretty up your alley, you might say. Yes, yes. Yeah, like this week we're uh, we're covering um, a book called The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin, um, which came out in 1974, I think, which is, um, I think when, when we were looking at this up, it was like, oh, that's, this is actually quite a bit earlier than we were expecting, because um, it's, um, it's hot stuff. It's a really, really great book, and I very much enjoyed it. Um, yeah, maybe like the greatest science fiction novel of the 20th century (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah, it's just fantastic um so yeah like um maybe yeah kyle why don't you give us a rundown of what the the book is kind of about right sure so uh we were just talking about climate fiction and we can absolutely see this as a precursor to that but it is a um mostly a, a work of speculative fiction um, in that it presents different societies and how they might interact with each other. So we have in the story uh, two twin worlds, right? One of which is the the main planet, the other is a moon, right? And uh, so these are the worlds of um, Anaris and Uros, so Uros is the sort of original planet where the humans in the story uh, grew up, uh, formed their society, and then there was a anarchist revolution uh, named by or led by a character named Odo, um, and the revolutionaries made a deal with the uh, capitalist class in Uros. Uh, and went and settled on Anaris, which had been settled as a mining colony, but was very sparsely populated and is this very, like, harsh desert environment. Um, so the, the anarchists go and form a society on Anaris, and that is where our protagonist, Shevik, a physicist, is from. Mm. Yeah, and I just kind of wanted to... Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure one of them's... Uh at the at the moon, I I think because there's a bit in there's a bit in the book, and I think it's when the the kind of the group of children are are talking that like um, they say like that they're they're our moon and we are their moon or something. So I, yeah, I think they so they're planets. they're like they're twin planets. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely implied that like one of them is much more desirable to live on than the other, though. <laughs> like yeah. Uros, Uros is a world of bounties, and Anaris is certainly not. Um, Pretty grim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so it is a story about um, this character Shevik, and it moves forward in two different timelines. Uh, so one of the timelines is about 
his like leading up to his decision to go to Uros at the start of the book um and his backstory basically like his his biography uh how did he grow up in this society how did he become a physicist how did he run into conflict with the structures of his society and what drove him to go to Uros and then the other timeline is the story of you know what happens after he gets to Uros how does he interact with the society there what does he learn um so it's cutting constantly back and forth between these two uh, these two timelines, uh, the, the chapters alternate one after the other. Um, it's only the first and last chapter that sort of unite the two timelines together. And this is kind of on point because he is a temporal physicist. <laughs> so, you know, he's very concerned with this idea of time. Um, and so she's, she's kind of playing on that. And I believe he was uh, sort of based on Robert Oppenheimer, um, as a as an inspiration um, for Shevik because uh, Oppenheimer was kind of a family friend uh, and so oh, I, I, I don't see him like entirely as an Oppenheimer figure because he's he's much less of like a sort of public operator than Oppenheimer was but um, the idea of a scientist driven by his conscience is totally uh, at work here in Shevik. Mm. Um, yeah, it's um, he's yeah you're right. He's he's definitely not a um, he's not he's not an especially charismatic character um, by the standards of a lot of the people he meets. Um, but like he's it's it's a really like what I found really interesting about this um, this book is that it manages to kind of um, make it so that like the when obviously like when when Shevek goes to Oras or he interacts with any of these characters he's kind of like in direct often in very direct sort of ideological conflict with them and is like picking fights wherever he goes basically but um it does a great job of making sure that like each part of the argument is well sort of argued by each sort of person because like What's, ha what's happening is that two very different worldviews, like two completely different subjectivities, are coming into direct collision where, um, yeah, there, there's, there's very little sort of common ground for the characters to truly understand each other on. And um, it's yeah, just... it's it's very much like the earlier platonic dialogues and not the later platonic dialogues, <laughs> right? Like there are points of view that are in con like in real meaningful conflict with each other. It's not just like, yes, Shavik, it is. So it is so Shavik. Very, very immediately after boarding the vessel. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like uh, so, Fraser, you picked out the the book for us, um, and I'm I'm really glad you did because it it has turned out to be fantastic. But um, like for you, what were the kind of like standout kind of themes and, and and moments in the in the book? Yeah, the the most interesting thing to me, well, when I first started reading it, I wasn't sure that I made a good decision, <laughs> but it was quickly rectified because uh, she does a wonderful job of creating some cognitive dissonance right away um you're like at first you're not sure if it is good writing or not because <laughs> you're just like wondering what is going on which is what uh Chavek's headspace is at right mm. so once you get a little bit into it and that becomes clear it's even more uh, clever that's when i 
sort of was like, it's the tip of the hat that shit's about to go down for me, basically. And, um, yeah, so for me, I was trying to look at it through the perspective of if this was uh, solar punk, cyberpunk, or just sci-fi, because I, I, I forgot to mention earlier, but I have a blog that is examining uh, cyberpunk, and I frequently come across many quotes from this book in cyberpunk, interestingly enough, like in many different contexts, many different blogs, and many different quotes. In fact, I have two quotes from this book in my book uh, for cyberpunk, so that was a, a driving force, too. I was like, huh, this is cyberpunk, hey, so might as well give it a read. And then as I was reading it, I was like, this is not cyberpunk. What's your take on those categorizations? Um, so I, I think by the end of it, I can squarely put it in solarpunk, but that's only probably near the end, which we'll get to, and I don't mm. want to blow right now, but... Throughout most of it, it is simply sci-fi. I think. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely like I've, I've a hard time believing it would be cyberpunk, especially because like computers play so small of a role in the kind of technology of these worlds. Um, like I think the the only mention of computation on Anhares is that they have a computer that doles out names on birth, and that's uh, they also they also have like a computerized planning system like oh, they yeah. use like input output tables mm -hmm. and linear programming to decide uh or not to decide but to allocate jobs mm -hmm. right to just like keep track of what jobs need doing and uh who can do them mm. yeah and quote unquote fairly yeah yeah <laughs> so it's, it's cybernetic in the kind of earliest sense of the term uh but not not what I would yeah. usually associate yeah. with cyberpunk. But it's yeah. not personal. There's no personal computing in this book. Yeah, and it's also interesting because, uh, like, halfway in, I had to check when it was written because I had the thought while I was reading it, this isn't cyberpunk, but I was also like, I should also come at it from the viewpoint of when it was written because maybe it was cyberpunk for the time that it was written because it would be, like, prototype cyberpunk or, or proto... Uh, solar punk or whatever but when i saw that it was 1974 i was uh immensely impressed <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but still not still not convinced that it was you know cyberpunk <laughs> yeah. um but i suppose sort of getting into the the this beginnings of the narrative um it kind of opens with this um this kind of image of a wall uh which is actually a theme that'll be running throughout the entire book and what's happening here is that there's an has one spaceport um and there's a wall around it that's kind of like ostensibly to keep the rest of the universe out, but it's also kind of segregating Anaris from the rest of the universe. Um, mm -hmm. And the kind of the what's happening in this the, this sort of early scene is that the that Shevek is leaving Anaris, and we're we're kind of introduced to him on his way boarding, like crossing the, this the, the like on through this wall and boarding a ship to to leave. Um, there's, there's like it, it doesn't seem to be going well. There's like angry mobs and stuff. But um, he boards the the vessel and like um, this is I think it's, it's really kind of affecting, right? Because like he he's as they lift off, he has this kind of view through the the viewport of like, and he, he doesn't really comprehend what's happening because it like he he describes a disc uh, um, appearing on the screen and then and then darkness, you know, this this sort of stuff that like you can tell. Oh, this 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 guy has been like earthbound forever and as doesn't really have a notion of um what it is to to lift off on one of these freighters um 
which I think was pretty cool. Um, like, I think she does a really excellent job of like getting the reader inside the head of the character and getting into his exact perspective. Yeah, and like he also—that's like the cognitive dissonance that I was talking about—and it's it cleverly changes throughout the book. It's it's very good, and then also, yeah, the wall returns quite frequently to great effect and to different uses, and um, I think he was struck by a rock and stuff too, right? So at first yeah. I was like, oh, he's just you know <laughs> tripping because he got hit in the head or whatever, <laughs> but eventually you're like, oh no, like he's just. He really just doesn't understand what's going on at the moment, and she's really good at writing that. <laughs> yeah, and like, yes, his his sort of perspective is 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 brilliantly put across because like he's he's amazed that the the water faucets continue to run on the right. ship. Like he's he's baffled by this notion that there wouldn't be a timer on the faucet. Or um, there's being, there's also there's also a really important. Um, uh, passage in this chapter that I wanted to highlight that that immediately gets across there's something peculiar about this society um, where the mob is coming after them and uh, she writes that if the foreman had no experience in bossing a mob they had no experience in being one members of a community not elements of a collectivity they were not moved by mass feeling there were as many emotions there as there were people, and they did not expect commands to be arbitrary, so they had no practice in disobeying them. Their inexperience saved the passenger's life. So it's, it's getting across this idea that, like, there is no concept of a mass in this society, mm. right? Like, this is a society of individuals, um, and it's getting across that anarchist ideal, right? Yeah, it's it's a, it's this sort of like um, platonic ideal of a, a like horizontalist uh, mutual aid society. Um, yes, well, and even assigning the the leader as a foreman is telling as well, right? It's like the the approximation of what you would call the person who was attempting to lead this thing, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. not really the best word, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's not like they have a commander or a captain or something like that. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like in a way, this is work for them and they're doing mm. it very poorly. <laughs> Interestingly, in the fiction, the, um, Anara, the people of Anares who are referred to as Anaresti, um, they speak an engineered language called Pravik, which um, does things like it. I, I wouldn't even be surprised if they simply didn't have a word for commander. Uh, that yeah, for, for right. and like it's it, it's a, it seems to be a very instrumental language where the the the, the language is about uh, life and work and the kind of all the trappings of, of those two things. Um, and they, I think there's. What is it that they, they don't have, or they strongly discourage the use of the possessive kind of terms? Um, yeah. Well, and also, um, they also stressed that there was no uh, pejoratives, really, too, because there, there was that, like, that was a construct of a different society. And then when we get to the planet, we see a ton of those, right? And he's just, like, taking it completely out of context and being like, what are you talking about? Yeah, whenever he wants to swear, he has to switch to another language to do it. Um, yeah, and and this is you know this is 
like almost certainly a huge influence on uh, on the culture novels and the the engineered language in that in those books. Um, this idea of, of of a language that has been sort of like slowly constructed by these utopians to re-engineer their own ways of thinking. Pretty interesting. Again, like very significant that Le Guin came from a family of anthropologists. Like this it, that. That runs so deeply through all of this book. It really does. Um, um, it like it, it. It sort of. I think it, it's really brilliant in making the reader understand that these people have like radically different subjectivities, just purely as a function of the society they emerged from. Um, so it, it definitely undermines the notion of a kind of singular human nature, or the notion that capitalism or the pursuit of like accumulation or hierarchy are just natural to humans because like there is such deep deep conflict not not even like ideological conflict but like just mental conflict between these characters that like they they don't comprehend each other really um they're coming from such radically different perspectives that like yeah it it really makes a it 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 makes sure you really can't think of it in terms of like oh this this one of these perspectives is natural and the other isn't um and that's kind of it's a really interesting part of this world where um they they have within that world or this sort of like collected world of, of uh, these these this interplanetary system um there is a living society that is living evidence that hierarchy is not natural or is is not inherent to human beings and that comes up later as being like this is like an implicit threat to the kind of order of well it's it's, it's an ex- explicit threat to the order of things on the main planet Uras and it's exactly why these people were ejected from that world and given this shitty moon to live on you know yeah but it, I also really liked that he couldn't truly express everything that he wanted to say until he learned three languages right like three different <laughs> yeah. perspectives and then he could communicate properly which means yeah. By default, nobody is truly communicating well in any of these societies, yeah. right? So. He ends up yes. being a real renaissance man by the end of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's got, got command yeah. of all these languages. He's traveled all the worlds. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, you, you, you can see the, the sort of Oppenheimer analogy there, right? Like, this is, you know, a, a man of the world, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um. But like, um, I think it's a, he comes into immediate conflict with the, his doctor immediately on the ship, which is kind of amazing. And like, they spend a couple of days just bickering about like um, about all these sorts of topics, which which sets the tone for what's going to happen when when he's actually on or us, um, which is pretty fantastic. But like, we fl- we flip then back to this like um, chapter two. I think it, it does strict alternation, doesn't it? Like it between yeah the, um, the future and the past. So the chapter two is like his, his childhood on Anares in um in this this little town, which I thought was was really quite fun because like you get introduced to the notion that they don't have kind of sort of strictly nuclear families on this planet. They that children are raised in um, kind of dormitories or like combined uh, dormitories and uh, educational units, and are kind of like collectively raised. Or like there's there's like a syndicate of teachers or something along those lines that um his his father and and mother are kind of in the picture but also not right like that um they they don't seem to have deep familial kind of ties in the way that we'd be accustomed to 
Yeah, they they like to refer to uh, when people are doing something bad, it's usually egoizing, right? Yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's putting um, yourself uh, before others, right? Um, what's the thing? He, he gets he gets absolutely torn down for like trying to explain Zeno's paradox or something to. Um, yes, he well he 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 comes up with Zeno's paradox independently, right? Like as a child, <laughs> he thinks up. He thinks up Zeno's paradox and like tries to explain it to his teacher, mm. and his teacher's just like, "Oh, you're just egoizing, like you know, <laughs> trying to come up with these like fanciful abstractions that nobody else is going to be able to understand." And and there's this constant theme of like he doesn't entirely fit in. Um, like you know, he starts out as a child, um, he's much more willful than the others, um, and. Uh, and then, yeah, then there's this whole thing about him becoming this, like, loner intellectual um, because of, you know, yeah, his his sort of brilliance. Um, and it's like, I think this chapter is super interesting because it's really easy to imagine where this story could have gone if it was written by Ayn Rand, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, the collectivity is holding him down. He's a solitary genius. Mm. And, like, <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's, it's so interesting. Like, I, I find <clears throat> th this chapter in particular is, like, really interesting as, like, Le Guin in dialogue with other sort of speculative fiction writers or like um like like Rand or also like um if you think about like the Lord of the Flies, I think is is definitely kind of like a background to this this chapter where Le Guin's sort of like, no, like no, that that's that's wrong. That's wrong. <laughs> so the, the touch point for that is that like the a group of the kids, um they sort of they they hear about Uras and they hear about things like prisons and they hear about the sort of um the hierarchy and the patriarchy and all these sort of bad things about the the the, the bourgeois society there but they they decide to experiment with a prison right that like they they find a sort of alcove under one of the buildings that they can make into a like makeshift little prison thing and it's this kind of stanford prison experiment sort of uh deal but the the, the children develop a distaste for it like they they don't want to do it like they kind of like it actually becomes very clear to them why this is a horrible thing rather than it being yeah. something that they get addicted to power or anything like that. Um, when collectively they take on basically the same amount of shame, too, which I thought was interesting. Usually it's like, in those narratives, it's like the one kid who's kind of the asshole and everybody else kind of goes along. But instead, everyone's like, yeah, let's try it out. Yeah, woo. And then everybody's like, whoa, that was, yeah, that that was bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They're just like, oh, that was distasteful and problematic. Let's, yeah. <laughs> let's not do that again. <laughs> let's not do that again. Uh, it, it, like, the important thing I think here is that it doesn't end by an adult coming in and being like, you kids need to get in line, right? Like, it's not like Lord of the Flies where an adult needs to, like, step in and assert authority in order to prevent society from going into, like, this horrible murder cult or something, right? Yeah, it is. It's mm. a collective. Yeah, like this, this, this society is capable of just doing, or it's like that. Like the, the children are capable of working out that this was a bad thing, right? Like um, they have enough of a moral compass. They know the principles of their society well enough that like they're not going to go off the deep end like that. Yeah, there's a footnote that says like 
none of them will speak of it again except for one kid who tries to bring it up when he's like drunk or something and the girl looks at him confused and he <laughs> never speaks of it again right it's like, <laughs> what is a prison <laughs> yeah. um and and we do kind of see the notion of imprisonment come up later in the book um as like sort of a specter of the society degenerating um, but generally speaking, it is like a completely alien concept. And she talks about a little bit about like exile. Like, it, yeah, it's it's really, really interesting. Like the general sort of system of justice that exists in this world. Right. Like that justice is kind of like it's either it's either like a thing that is like arbit not arbitrated out, but like done by committee or it's just a thing that is like very much in the medieval mode of justice where it's like people just kind of do it, you know, like it, there's no central authority meeting out justice. It's like if you um, do something very bad to someone else, like they can call for help or the community will just like enact like summary violence on you. Right. Like, yeah, you'll be, you'll either be exiled or you'll just be like killed. And it's like, well, that's, you know, there's no there's no like legal system arbitrating this stuff. It's just like this is what people do because they are sovereign individuals and there is no um, system they have to go through or authority they have to appeal to. It's just whatever happens, happens. Yeah. And it's kind of telling, too, that like. Um, they they ask like what about the kind of middle ground for infractions and he's sort of like nobody eats with those guys <laughs> right like <laughs> yeah yeah exactly there's like ostracism and then beyond that is sort of like kind of like arbitrary violence right as punishments but generally speaking this is not like a major problem right which is also though what what is sort of dealt with people that don't interact with their ways of life in the way that they would like to either yes like later on so that that's interesting yeah. as well yeah 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 exactly hmm. yeah it's good um so i think then chapter three brings us to like actually arriving on on oras and um, he's again sort of like still baffled by all the kind of opulence and um, there's this thing where he's like led to his like uh, sleeping quarters which is this like kind of large um, apartment all to himself and he presumes that it's going to be a dormitory that like the the servant or the butler or whoever that's there he assumes that's his roommate. <laughs> you know, right. he just doesn't yeah. have any, doesn't have a concept of like um, he's he's like introduced to all these concepts like he's he's baffled initially by there being servants, you know, at all, um, mm -hmm. and that sort of stuff. And it's um, like you, you get this real sort of walkthrough of this this guy who's like basically born yesterday on this this world who like has to acclimatize to every little thing about this um, class society that he now finds himself in. Yeah, he only figures it out because there's only one bed and one toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's quite fun. And like he gets he gets the sort of visit from uh, his like physicist colleagues. So I think it's it's becoming clear by this point in the narrative that um, he's been invited to he, he either either been invited there or has just gone there because of his physics work, right? Like that um, he's been welcomed by these, and it's like oh he's. While on Anaris, he's, like, written really awesome papers. There's been communications back and forth between the scientific communities on uh, on both worlds. 
Um, there's, you know, each of them sometimes hold the other in high regard, but there's also this friendly competition, or I suppose maybe not all that friendly given the um, capitalistic sort of bourgeois nature of the Orasti, but um, there is this competition sort of between the, the two worlds as well. So we get the kind of introduction to these guys. There's, there's basically a Cold War taking place on Uras, and there's also a Cold War. Uh, well, not really a Cold War, but like a definite like division between Anaris and Uras. Like they have an arrangement worked out where Anaris is basically a like mining colony for Uras. They provide. Um, this is like Le Guin's conceit for why the Arasi, Arasti don't just come and conquer Anaris, um, which is that the Arasti used up all of their mineral resources on the planet, um, and Anaris is where the minerals are. And the, um, the people from Anaris do mining and then send the minerals to Uras. And because of this, like, arrangement where they're basically, like, a factory that produces minerals for Uras, the Uras, you leave them alone. It's probably really cheap labor, really. <laughs> you know, the, yeah, it, they're probably getting it for a song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Um, um, which is, you know, again, like, pretty prescient talking about what would happen with the integration of China into global capitalism <laughs> yeah. uh, later in, in the century. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, we get this kind of, like, the sense that, like, the the sort of different scientific communities are kind of like, or at least on sort of Anaras, you have this, like, scientific community that's, like, trying to trying to live up to the sort of glories of Erasti, um physics, you know, that, like, they're trying their best to actually kind of um, impress them and kind of do their own sort of novel work. And Shevek is actually working on something novel. He's, like, doing this temporal physics stuff. Um, and they, they, there's this constant sort of thing about, like, this this conflict between, like, sequence theory and simultaneity theory. Um, and he, he's trying to verify the latter or something. He he's, he's, he's basically reconstructing the theory of general relativity, right? Um, like... I mean, I don't know if the Terrans already know about it in this in this fictional setting, but like that's pretty much what he's doing, right? He's coming up with general relativity versus like a linear concept of time. Um, he's coming up with like the theory of space time, right? Yeah, it's, um, it's weird because he there there is reference to uh, to Einstein as being a Terran physicist. Um, so I think it's it's a refinement of some of those concepts, but like also. When 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 you get dialogue that's like different physicists commenting on the work from other worlds, it's they all they almost usually refer to it as just baffling that like um like Terran physics is is baffling to uh to these these people here and uh Hainish physics is um is 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 beyond what, what any of them can kind of wrap their heads around. Um so it's almost like they don't even speak the same language in terms of physics, right? That like they they have such radically different styles of doing science that like it's kind of really hard to follow or something. Well, maybe not like different ways, but uh, they're they're what they find useful in each society differs, and so yeah, they they just kind of like categorize what each other's work is based on what they can get out of it, and so miss the value of all of it basically. Mm-hmm. And the real MacGuffin here, though, is is basically that Shevik has within him the knowledge necessary to create like 
warp travel, right? Like that 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 there will be instantaneous interstellar communication if his theories are applied. Um, so that's why he's so valuable. Mm. Um, and like it's it's kind of starting to become clear at that point as well that like the the Arasi are trying to get that out of him. Um, that they they kind of want him to be able to finish off the the work. Um, but we, we get like throughout um, throughout a lot of the rest of the the book, we get this kind of picture of him being kind of hampered constantly in on his homeworld uh, in his in his research efforts. Um, that there there is like an institute of physics, or there, there you know there obviously there is a scientific community. There's like a syndicate of um, what they call it, like the syndicate of initiative or something. Um, Mm. But that within that, he's kind of like taken under the wing eventually of um, what's the char- the character's name? Uh, Sable. Um, yeah, who's Sable. Kind of the, the head, the head honcho, and but he's all he's also like kind of constantly hampered as well. That like he's kind of being blocked at every turn from actually doing quality work, um, and it's it's kind of interesting that this this society still has like. In the absence of kind of like explicit hierarchy and explicit power, you've still got like implicit power and hierarchy that like technically this Sable character shouldn't have any power over anyone else, but yet does just by the nature of the way he's positioned himself in this matrix, you know? Um, yeah, like like technically he's he's the embodiment of like egoizing, but yet he's he nobody rises against him, right? Yeah, and this is like very much reminiscent of um, it's very much reminiscent of the way that certain academics within the Soviet Union were able to use knowledge from the United States uh, to maneuver themselves into better academic positions Um, like especially when we talk about like the rise of cybernetics within the Soviet Union um that that sort of like foreign knowledge is what gives Sable his power, right? He is a gatekeeper, um, and uh, and it's it's also quite interesting because it's kind of like the Erasti academic system is basically intruding on the society of Anaris by way of Sable, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Um, um, yeah, because he's the main link to the outside as well. What is it, the PD or something? Yeah, right? like the shipping. The shipping guys will only take packages that he's signed for to ship outwards or something like that. Like there is there is this kind of like weird thing where like yeah, again, technically no one should have substantial power over anyone else, but then like for some reason the shipping syndicate or whoever is managing the you know ferrying books and stuff and prints between these worlds. Um, just won't touch anything that he hasn't uh, vetted himself, which means that like uh, our protagonist Shevek can't just publish whatever and stick it on a freighter and have it go to Uras. It kind of all has yeah. to go through this guy. Um, yeah, which is how he gets co-opted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and this is kind of a way that like uh, Shevek kind of eventually becomes quite disillusioned because like he he starts out as kind of a, quite a sort of naive believer in the sort of. Um, the tenets of the society and he sort of believes that the society works just organically sort of um well enough but then some of his friends kind of like make these kind of remarks about you know particular sort of hidden power dynamics that they've observed 
Um, and then he manages to observe the same with um, his interactions within this academic sphere. And he seems to become quite disillusioned uh, with the society, which then probably fuels his, his desire to go to Oros as a... Um, you know, like we've we've heard forever that these prop what 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 what, is, what do they, the the word they use consistently is propertarians, which I think is fantastic. We've heard that these propertarians are are devils, but like maybe if we go there, we can build bridges. No, he he doesn't use the term build bridges. He constantly refers to tearing down walls. Like he's he's preoccupied with these walls that are um, erected between these two societies, and like I think the theme of walls recurs constantly as well. That like. There's a, through the book, there's this constant theme of, like, division and, uh, you know, separation and who's on the inside and who's on the outside, um, even down to, like, what the definition of inside and outside really is. Like, if you're if you're on mm-hmm. one side of the wall, are you on the in or the out? Like, there's, yeah. there's so much of that kind of, um, that analogy that's, like, peppered all the way through this sort of thing. But um, he, does, he does seem to believe that if he goes to a Uras, he'll be able to kind of, like... Um, bring something useful back. I think is is seems to be his motive. Um, well, he'll be able to produce something that they will not allow him to produce in his home world. Yeah, because the thing is, like, even though he is an independent individual, um, the scholarly community does not accept his ideas, right? And he can he can he has this mentor character, right? Who um who <clears throat> shares some of his like radical theories about physics and like you know when she dies she's basically ignored and Completely, no one yeah. yeah like nobody cares about her at all um like she dies in obscurity and he's like the only one who really recognizes how brilliant she was and it's like that is the future that is staring him down if he tries to continue to exist within this academic system um, just because of the power of consensus. Um, yeah. It's important, too, that his disillusionment is in um, parallel with uh, the book's narrative, with it him being disillusioned from his own point of view. <laughs> it's, got a real, yeah. it's got a real sort of hard middle where it's just disillusionment all around, right? Because he's yeah, he's he's on Uras at the uh, it, you know, in 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 these alternating chapters, he's on Uras like discovering how shitty that society is as well, right? Like he's um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's a rough rough middle. I'll say that <laughs> it it sure is. <laughs> <laughs> the the contrasts between the two societies are really really fantastic, and I think very well constructed. Like um, I think one of his one of his points of disillusionment with Oras is that like he's taken on a shopping trip through this like glittering fucking metropolis or whatever that um that is his is in new hometown, um, and he sort of like twigs that like he he can't see any labor being done anywhere. Like it's it's all shop fronts and like uh you know con- it's all consumption side stuff, but there's no indication that production is happening, and he's really perturbed by this. And that's in yeah, contrast. The fetishism to, of commodities, right? Right, yeah. And that's in contrast to the scenes we saw on his like academic hometown of Abane in on on Anares, where the streets or the sort of the, the architecture of the city is such that um all the labor is basically done in the open. That like it's it's mm-hmm. it's not like avenues of shop fronts, it's avenues of like workshop fronts. Like uh, laundry is being done. 
um, you know, production furniture making and such are being done in these like neighborhoods where the where the the objects will actually be used. And so there's like on in one society a very direct sort of connection between production and consumption, um, and in the other it's completely obfuscated. Um, yeah, well, and it's important too that she goes out of her way to show that jewelry in that society uh, is art and not commodified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah, it's like jewelry for them is like a um, an entirely personal craft, like that, like it's it's just done by individuals for the sake of it, and like the it ends up being like you know, a pebble with copper wire wrapped around it or whatever, but it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, still quite nice. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's entirely plausible that, um, you know, jewelry would be a common art because this is a mining world they are on fundamentally, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, like I was literally picturing, um, like, chunks of diamond in copper wire or something <laughs> like that, right? Yeah. Like, And them just being like, that's, that's real nice, and here would be like, that would be many monies right yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's 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 um so there was one other sort of thing that i wanted to to kind of talk about like that um this this character odo who's like part of the history of this this world is um she's the kind of like revolutionary force or the the, the revolutionary theoretician who kicked off all this sort of stuff and seems to be like a, a sort of amalgamation of like marx lenin and uh Kropotkin and like Bookchin and basically everyone you could imagine right rolled into one. Um, yeah, she is like the Voltron of 19th century <laughs> socialism. <laughs> but, um, but like her her major work in this universe is um, the social organism, uh, which kind of lays the foundations for how this society on An- Anares would uh, eventually be constructed. But I kind of I like th- this this theme of like the organicism that like and it's it's like it's it's like when when you hear organic or whatever you might think, you know think oh freshly farmed you know uh, grass fed beef or whatever but what the, what it means is organ as in organize and like it's 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 organ in a mechanical sense almost um, yeah and it's it's what that's the kind of guiding principle that constructs this whole this whole sort of society but. Um, what Shevik eventually kind of like concludes, and like he and his peers eventually conclude about the society is that it's starting to stagnate and it's kind of becoming like an organic bureaucracy. Um, where this, it, it, I think if, I found it really interesting that like there isn't like um, there isn't an, an evil antagonistic force that's doing this, like turning their world into a bureaucratic one. It's just kind of the natural consequence of oh, we we had like a, a drought for two years and em- enacted emergency measures to, you know, bureaucratize these these functions or to be a little bit more stringent on these other functions. And then the rules never quite go away. And then there's a, the habits forming and that sort of stuff. And so they're finding that there's just this like tendency towards um, bureaucracy that they, that they don't like and they, they would really like to um, stir up, you know, and... Um, get some more energy yeah. going Be- behave like proper anarchists even within a ostensibly anarchic society i think that was that was right. pretty fun <laughs> right and also that it's like uh to not question your existence and motives and and drives is you know a crushing force onto itself right like even within any system because you know there's that point where he's like have you ever known anyone to refuse a job posting 
and and they're like, well, I'm sure it happens and stuff. And he's like, yeah, those are the people we don't like. Remember? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Like, yeah, you it, can technically refuse, but nobody ever does, and it's because the consequences are actually kind of bad, right? Like, uh, so. yeah, and and the there's a lot going on there. Like, there is this whole thing where Le Guin has this really sort of like ambiguous view of materialism, right? Like that she kind of seems to say at points that you know, true anarchism is impossible. Like, basically getting to full communism is impossible in an environment of scarcity because of the reasons we've been talking about. The way that that scarcity kind of orients people towards drudgery and limits the horizons of their thinking. Um, and we, we definitely see that when the, uh, when the, the, the drought comes about, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But... There's also parts where she seems to suggest that the scarcity on Anaris is functional because it brings people into solidarity with each other in a way that might not work in a society that had more plenty. Um, so she's really, like, on the fence about this question. Like, Yeah, it's more of, like, a thought experiment than, like, her... her she doesn't care about the answer. She cares about the questions. Right, right. But and then so another thing that's really important there is this idea of permanent revolution, right? That the, the revolution has to be lived and constantly renewed or it will atrophy, it will ossify and it will die. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, there is this thing where, yes, they live in an anarchist society. However, if they lose revolutionary praxis, um, if they if they cease living in a revolutionary way, and there there is a sense that like the first generation of settlers were more sort of like free thinkers than the later ones, um, that the the society is in danger of falling into uh, statism and authoritarianism. Yeah, and also that like. Uh, for him to accomplish anything like his what he calls his uh, function right is he has to be nourished first and he doesn't understand what it is to be nourished in either society until he figures it out for himself it's 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 so interesting because it's like uh like she condemns both but celebrates their good points as well at the same time right so uh, and at different times, like his disillusionment comes to the point where he goes to the park and uh, sits with Odo's sculpture, right, or bust or whatever, and kind of like it envies that she wasn't there to enact the things that she was thinking, but rather that like he felt so envious that she wrote them at all uh, mm -hmm. and didn't get to experience <laughs> what her experiment wrought. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So. Um, yeah, yeah. I kind of it's 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 a bit sort of um, yeah, it's it's a bit sort of on the fence or kind of wishy washy or whatever. But like, I I kind of like that in that like it's, um, it is it, to, from Shevek's perspective, it is all rather ambiguous. Like he he goes back and forth a couple of times as to how he feels about these various societies. Like he's really taken in by Uras in, initially, um, yeah. for quite a while. He's seduced, yeah. 
But then he, he eventually... Literally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he, he eventually concludes that it's basically a, a living hell to him. And then from another character's perspective, he's being kind of crazy that, like, the, the planet she comes from is an actual living hell and that, like, Oras is a heaven, you know? Um, yeah. But I think it's, it's, like, it's ambiguous, but, like, that's kind of the nature of being a... Um, fully actualized sort of entity in the world like like Shevak is that like yeah there's there's a lot going on in that that universe for him to um to chew over yeah and for her to like what i got from it was for her to offer a solution would herself have been like egoizing right so instead she's just like here is as good as i can get two sides of each coin in these different societies and to, to really figure it out, we'd have to actually do it, because we don't know shit, really. Slash, I hate academia, mic drop, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, boy. Wow. Yeah. This was just sort of coming from my life story. Yeah. The whole bits about academia were really hard to get through, because uh, I've lived that life. Uh, it's... It's... Ugh, it's it's very, very close to home. Uh, it's like the most detailed ever. part of the book, right? Like the, yeah. the most yeah. loving, crafted part of the book is the the backbiting and horror of academia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it, it's I mean, it's sort of easy to joke about, but like honestly, I you know really did have sort of like. Uh, like a reaction of PTSD going through this book. Like I could, I could, I, yeah, I was having episodes in my mind and, and there's definite like psychosomatic reactions to reading this stuff because it's just triggers so much stuff that I, I went through. So, I mean, it's, it's, it, I really appreciated that aspect of this book because a lot of what she says is very validating of people who are treated very badly by the academic system. Um, and, you know, it obviously comes from her experience and the experience of her family and those people that she knows uh, and is often a thing that is like silenced in academia, which is part of the whole problem. So, you know, for those of you out there who uh, are grad students or have have struggled uh, with the academic system, you know, there's there's definitely a big red trigger warning on this book um, <laughs> to 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 look out for. But you may also get, uh, you know, some really meaningful uh, validation and reflection out of reading it if if you can psych yourself up to do it maybe don't maybe don't cram it in like a week and a half like I tried to do that's that's probably a little bit a little bit uh destructive but you know come yeah. to it when you feel like you're ready yeah yeah I thought it was a good book to especially when you take your time if you read it when you kind of like want to get riled up it's good mm -hmm. right yeah, yeah, it's it's a revolutionary text, right? Um, <laughs> it it is it is meant to be incendiary, and like you know, um, I think she said in reflecting on this book that like, you know, maybe I wouldn't have been as as forceful as uh, stated things as strongly if I had known the history that would follow um, seventy four, right? Like that. 
that basically like having lived through the decades of neoliberal hell, um, you know, it was hard for her to look back and summon up the same sort of strength of conviction that she brought into writing this book. Uh, but I think that's very representative of that entire short period from 68 to 73 that that was so productive um, intellectually and in terms of like social imagination, but also like tragically doomed and and, and looked back on with with deep um, skepticism. Yeah. So like what, what, what was it about that time specifically that kind of produce these kind of artifacts? Well, it was a period where um, you had the simultaneous sort of like influences of the baby boom, kind of like the baby boomers reaching majority, right? Becoming adults. Um, you had like, so within within the, the core of the capitalist system, uh, you had uh, the... Um, anti-colonial movement, the post-colonial movement, uh, the third world movement sort of coming to the fore. You had the capitalist system uh, falling into crisis um, because the uh, basically the contradictions of Keynesianism were becoming more and more manifest. But at the same time, the working class was, relatively speaking, more empowered and had gone through a period of um, a period of prosperity and sort of like a growing share of the pie for a longer period than had maybe like ever happened in human history, or at least in the ha history of capitalism. So even among the working class, there was a certain amount of um, desire for experimentation and for an alternate society and that the you know these contradictions of a con of a mass consumer society were sort of coming to the fore for everybody um and so you saw in social theory um in political practice in literature in music um you know all of these different areas there was this enormous flourishing of ideas and like, you know, it was very problematic, right? Like there was this huge drug culture that went along with that. And there were a lot of people who were really confused and lost, but at the time it seemed like it, it could carry itself forward because there was an imagination in people's minds. Like, you know, as bad as the Vietnam war was as bad as X, Y, and Z was, there was an imagination in people's mind of a better future and and a, a, and a, a sort of lived experience of rising prosperity that they had grown up in. And then you had, you know, 73, the oil crisis hits and neoliberalism replaces Keynesianism. Um, you get this horrible period of um, struggle that follows that. Um, and uh, and then the neoliberals win, the capitalists win, um, and then you just get neoliberalism after that. So, so the '70s is you know is like this this period of it starts out with enormous idealism and optimism and ends in just like the the like the lowest depths of bitterness and despair. Um, yeah. So it, this book was written right in the middle of that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, on the cusp of things changing. 
Yeah, and not being able to take care of um, the vets coming back from the Vietnam War and stuff, too, just would have put a general shittiness in everybody's mouth for the years to come. Yeah, and, and it's also, you know, like, the, the, the late 70s, like, in the UK is, like, a period of, like, you know, the trouble, like, right? It's just, like, the, the, like society seems to have no leadership. There's class conflict, but nobody's coming out ahead. Um, that, you know, that's that's... That is the environment that Thatcher stepped into, right? Um, and and it just uh, it, it's like it's not that the neoliberals decisively won in the seventies. It's that after seventy three, things started to be get, become more and more sort of like upsetting and unstable. Um, and uh, and it was in the eighties that you know there's this sort of like triumph of neoliberalism decisively. Yeah, there there is some interesting stuff uh, feminist-wise in it, too, which was what made me check the date. Like, her using uh, uh, On the Moon, where Chevette comes from, he uses uh, partners a lot, right? Which is what we use typically now. So I was like, oh, is this pretty new? Like, how groundbreaking was this? And then I saw 1974. I was like, what the? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, like, this book, in terms of, like, sort of gender relations and family structures and feminism is like, you know, I, I feel like it was kind of at the leading edge of, of its time, but then like considering the reaction that followed, it was like light years ahead of yeah. <laughs> where like we were in the nineties, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Most definitely. There was there's a lot of language that we have accepted in our own uh, like general consensus now that is used in this book as well as like um uh, the way that relationships are going like monogamy dying and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. And and just like she she does a very good job of making things that are stupid look stupid in this book just by placing it in POV of somebody who doesn't understand the society. Mm-hmm. Like yes. <laughs> like oh, you want to go sleep? Uh, okay, there's always a room open cuz that's just how the society is and you're like, okay, well the yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? The <laughs> yeah. single people, the single people take up as much space as single people take, and the and double people, you know, they take up as much double people. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. But even yet, we don't have concepts <laughs> like that. Yeah, anything yeah. even remotely approaching the sort of arrangements that they have on an RS. Um, yeah, yeah, it's very like pragmatic and uh, interesting. And like you, you know. There's a lot of stuff in this book where that is her reflecting on the period or the moment of free love, right? Um, and and sort of coming up with her own perspectives and 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 the dilemmas of 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 where she lands with it. But it's very like considered and thoughtful, and it's not just like oh, obviously, like you know, um, the nuclear family is the natural God given social arrangement and all of society has to be arranged around that no she's like a lot more nuanced in her thinking and and able to present like this this critical perspective that is is persuasive Um, and and also uh gender in in that system right like it's very much a social construct and like he, he he isn't like when he sleeps with his male colleague and it doesn't find it satisfying he's not like i'm gay and i'm in a gay relationship and i i don't like it anymore 
anymore. He's just like, tried that out and, you know, it wasn't giving it to me very good. And so whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. And, and, and that, that relationship that he has with, um, his friend bed up is like very nuanced, right? Like yeah. the, the, the continuum between, you know, being, um, friends and being lovers and like the way that those characters have different perspectives on the relationship um and the way it changes over time is all like incredibly nuanced stuff um yeah it is actually a partnership yeah it's not just like oh he is a gay therefore xyz right like it is not at all that kind of thing um yeah 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 and like yeah, all of that uh, progression with his private life was really nuanced and interesting. And there is some Prudish stuff later on that is definitely a product of its time, though, like with uh, with drinking and some other things. I, I know that, like, I can't remember. I didn't note exactly, but there's definitely some, like, antiquated terms and stuff, which is what made me check the publishing date. I was like, mm-hmm. this is so far ahead, but so far <laughs> not. <laughs> yeah, kind of when I'm all yeah. those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I mean, like, yeah, it, it's it's whatever. It's a product of its time, but it's definitely as extrapolating things. It's very, she, she's she knows her shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, and like for the listener, unless it's it, it unless it's actually like not clear so far, this is basically an unqualified recommendation. <laughs> you know, like oh, yeah, yeah, this is fantastic. I mean, <laughs> it, this is. Uh, as good as science fiction gets like they're really it you know you might you might find elsewhere science fiction that is it that sort of gives you neat scientific ideas in in more sort of depth than this than this because this book is largely sort of retreading early 20th century physics in terms of what its subject matter is uh, but hey, uh, because of neoliberalism, physics never really progressed very far past that. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the the presentation of scientific ideas in this book is is in service to the social speculative fiction. Um, but it's nevertheless clearly a, a work of science fiction. Like the the science matters, you know. Um, it, it's it's not dismissed. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it sort of actually like I think it actually does matter to the plot in some. It it sort of tangen- tangentially. So like, there's um, early on, Shevik is kind of concerned with like he wants to do this physics stuff because he wants to find the kind of foundations of the universe and verify that they're solid or something, something to that effect, right? That like, he's, he is concerned with solidity and, um, kind of stability in a kind of roundabout kind of way. But then a lot later when he actually gets around to figuring out the last bits of equations for his, um, his, uh, his theory, he's, he's thinking about, um, uh, Einstein and, and, uh, and relativity and so on. But like, it's, it's spelled weirdly in, in this, Mm-hmm. This fiction, so but you can still you can still tell it's you know it's this Terran physicist uh, Einstein or whatever the hell it's it's actually spelled. Yeah, but he he's he's pondering that the something about the those you know theories turned out to be kind of unverifiable, or you know, and then he he sort of wonders like what what if I accepted that my theory of X Y and Z was unverifiable, 
and then it all and then it all falls into place once once he accepts that there really isn't solidity he sort of accepts um you know kind of uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorem basically um he accepts that and then the theory falls into place and it it suddenly works i think and but then then he does conclude that he he had seen the foundations of the universe and they were solid so it's there's some, there's something in there of like accepting um a certain fluidity and a certain kind of uncertainty about like or accepting a certain lack of stability as a way of stabilizing oneself you know because up until that point he's quite lost and quite kind of buffeted about by all the events around him you know yeah but he's also in order to reach um what is that technology it starts with an a it's the, the ansible yeah the ansible he has to uh, accept that as well but also do like a form of like step therapy right like he he accepts that first before we can travel here we need to be able to uh, reach an approximation of the final thing that i need which is for everybody to be able to speak to each other at once so we all can figure this out because mm-hmm. like i'm an island right now right and that's not so good yeah it's that crushing sense of isolation um that almost kills him um in the middle of the book right and he's he's most of the sort of story of him going to Uras is about trying to overcome that isolation, mm. right? Um, yeah, breaking down walls. Um, I wonder, is, is the Ansible a widget in the rest of the Hainish cycle? It probably is. Like, if that's... It feels like what? It's, it, so the, 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 rest of the, the rest of the books in the series, the, the Hainish cycle, yeah. um, I wonder if the Ansible is a widget in... in that actually exists in those, and this is the story of that coming about. Because um, it's a yeah. seems likely, yeah. Because it's a, it's a special word that's concocted just for this one thing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's supposed to be the fifth book in that cycle. Ah. So I, I think this this is like a very seminal, pivotal thing in that history of the thing that this Ansible becomes, you know, a thing in the world. Yeah, I wonder if it. I I wouldn't be surprised if some of the books in the future kind of like nod to the ending, right? Like to what happened to the the Hanish guy or whatever, right? Maybe that's why it's so like cliffhangery. <laughs> it is very cliffhangery. So I mean, we could probably go over some of the ending bits. Um, because like, uh, Shevek does eventually kind of like so. At at some point, it becomes quite clear that he's gonna he's being kind of messed around by the um his hosts, and they intend to they intend to get his work and then keep it to themselves and use it as a way of leveraging against the other humanoid um, kind of uh, peoples. But uh, Shevek doesn't want this to happen. And so eventually ends up at the embassy of Terra, uh, which is Earth. You know, it's, like, um, it's been used a lot in sci-fi at this point, but uh, I, I kind of wonder if this is the first, one of the first instances of using the word Terra to refer to a, a future Earth. Um, but he, he does uh, give up the he, he does kind of publish the the work but on the condition that it's broadcast widely to everyone uh, and isn't just a property of one uh, subspecies but he has this really interesting exchange with the Terran ambassador as the thing I alluded to earlier where he sort of concludes that like to him Uras is basically hell right like it's there isn't anything useful here except for people's greed and their power and their scrambling to get on top of each other and that, but that for the Terran ambassador, she says that like, like long ago, Terra had become a, a, a wasteland and that had been, you know, for survival, the humans there had um, 
created a like authoritarian sort of centralized economy that was was pretty brutal and so to her um uras was a heaven you know because it was a functioning society that was in a living biosphere uh compared to the hell she'd come from um and so there's there's again this this division like as 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 much as uh Shevek has tried to break down walls there's still this subjective uh division between them that like there's there's just something about the way they think that'll never really be reconcilable um, yeah at, at one point he kind of like coyly or otherwise asks everybody kind of what they would do with his stuff right and there are they're all like the one guy the the thurian i think is like we would we would be able to crush this these people right and the other guy would be like mutually assured destruction <laughs> and then like <laughs> and then another guy is just like well I'll give it to people but first we need to be better than them right so he's all kind of like mm, these people are all kind of not so great so yeah i'm kind of i'm wondering if he like goes back constructs the ansible and that's how he gives them the formula like by by using his technology possibly but i I think as well like the the answer the uh terran ambassador gives is really interesting because like her reaction to the prospect of the ansible is to say that you mean to tell me that i could speak to my granddaughter on earth right now instead of you know with an 11 year difference Right, right. That's, there's a very marked difference in the way she responds to um, to the prospect of it. It's true. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of like a, a bolstering end <laughs> to the quest for sure. Well, especially what got him there, right? Like right before that, he holds a. They have that uh, the um, what would you call it? Even like a, a kind of weird protest, <laughs> but mm, not really. <laughs> the, the failed revolution. I wonder is that is that a, is it an allusion to kind of May '68 or something like? Yeah, <laughs> potentially could be. Uh, and then like some people get messed up. He manages to you know with his life. It's a life and death situation for a little bit. One his comrade dies, and then he makes it to the embassy, and then that's when somebody appreciates you know, what yeah. he's going to make, so... Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the conclusion then is that um, un- under protection of the t- Terran embassy, he's kind of um, brought up to... Uh, it's, a, it's a ship that's shared between the Terrans and the Hainish, um, but is is delivered back to... Ura- uh, to not to Uras, but uh, to Anares. Um, but he's joined this time by uh, a Hainish person who is going to set foot on... Anaris for the first time, like it's nobody, nobody from off world has has actually come um, for all this time, and he's he's kind of warned as well that like I mean I don't know what's going to happen. They could shoot you on sight. Who the fuck knows? Um, but uh, it finishes on a really nice note, I think. Where um, like there's constant allusion to how like Shevek doesn't have any luggage. He doesn't bring anything with him when he leaves Anaris, but he also returns with nothing. Um, there's this bit about him being empty-handed. As he had always been. Um, that's basically the last line, um, or one of the last lines. And um, yeah, there's something really f- kind of interesting about that. That like, Shevek is this kind of like by that point like a fully actualized sort of being who kind of knows himself very well and has has nothing to his name still. Like you know, e- even having gone on this big adventure and acquired all this infamy, um, and temporarily being in possession of a lot of uh, wealth on Uras, um, returns to his homeworld with nothing, you know, um, and that's fine because he's he's just a person, you know. Yeah, and like uh, the the thing that I like about that too is that uh, 
uh, I wonder if this is the genesis of that. Uh, you cannot buy the revolution. It must be right, because it's mentioned quite often in the book. Like it is reiterated. Yeah. Mm. So I wonder if that's where that came from. I wouldn't be surprised, but uh, I, otherwise, she's heavily influenced by wherever that came from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and I think like it's. It's it's a thing that kind of comes up again and again in the sections on Anaris that people's personal property is very limited, right? Like, you know, when um, Shevik's partner, Takver, yeah, when Takver leaves, um, yeah, when she leaves Avenade to go and, and, and do work during the famine, like, it's, it's very explicit that, like, you know, all she really owns is, like, a few pairs of clothes. And, but... It's not as though the culture on Anaris is dead because people have so little personal property, right? Like, there is a lot of sort of, like, their social life and their work. Like, I mean, in a way, this is a very Marxist book because the way that Odo talks about labor is is very much in line with, with the way Marx talks about labor, um, where, you know, it, it is this thing that is personally productive and you don't need to have a lot of stuff to be a fulfilled person as long as you're in society with other people and are able to work right um and there's this this whole discussion in the book about you know the distinction between work and play and like odo trying to tease out what the right perspective is on that uh, that's that's super interesting, but um, yeah, very much emphasizing the importance of creative work over um, ownership all the way yeah. throughout here. And like performing whatever function it is that you think you are like supposed to do, right? Like nobody can tell you what it is. You need to figure it out and then do it. And that is your service to humanity, doing the thing that you know that you are supposed to do. So that's why it's okay to be a craftsman or whatever, right? Like even if people don't understand why you're doing it and you believe that you're performing your function, it's okay ostensibly in this society to do that. But uh, it's also alluded to quite frequently that Odo believed that this was the beginning, right? But they have taken it as, like, scripture and not grown from it, right? Like, there's, there, there needs to be a more to it and a revolution from it. And instead, they have just been, like, copied it word for word and not really understood it and implemented it. Right. Yeah, and that is because of the, sc the scarcity, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And she couldn't, like he was saying, she couldn't have imagined what the place was like. <laughs> like, in his disillusionment, right? He yeah. wonders, like, what she would have amended if she realized that there's, like, nothing there, right? Like, they get super mm -hmm. excited when they see a tree, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the time that revolution happens, Odo has been dead for 700 years or so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like there's there's definite definite parallels with with Marx like in our in our world like they um yeah that like I mean the let's let's say the the parallel with um the Russian Revolution is like it's not really the the revolution that Marx had envisioned right like um Odo was writing for um uh, writing the social organism for Uras right like and presuming that it would happen there um, yeah yeah totally that is a that is a one hundred percent an analogy that works. If Uras is the Germany of uh, <laughs> this world. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so the the reason why I thought it was solar punk in the end is because of the Ansible, right? Like, without that kind of technological advancement, I was kind of like, <laughs> what are people seeing in this book that I'm not seeing or whatever? Right on like, a knife edge. <laughs> yeah, like the, the anarchism, I, I can get why they would place that with cyberpunk, obviously, but uh, uh, solar punk... It took a little while because solar punk's all about being like hopeful of the future um, yet to come. And yeah, I think it just hits it on the yeah. like, last 50 pages <laughs> or something. Right. Because like, yeah, before that, I was just like, mm. it just it, it Indiana Jones is its way under the door and like grabs its hat. And pulls it through. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think there is a there is a hopeful message in the end, um, you know, as 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 many problems as the society on Anaris has, um, there is the suggestion that they can be overcome, you know? And like, she, she definitely does portray a lot of, of good sides about the society. Um, in addition to the sort of stultifying conformism and, and, and inability to, to think critically and creatively about the sort of fundamental tenets of the society. Um, and capitalism you know, like, too. Like when he first gets there, he sees the good in it too. Before he yeah. realizes like what's happening, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's like these people have so much, right? <laughs> um, and like, yeah, there there is a there is a sort of moment in the beginning there where he's like, well, like you know, this is very reflective of like the '60s. Um, or like the early 70s where it's like, well, even the, you know, average workers seem to have a lot of stuff. So like, you know, it's it's not as bad as I, I thought based on the sort of like propaganda I read as a kid. Right. It's like that scene in um, in Red Plenty where uh, Khrushchev goes to America and is sort of like, huh. Okay, this is so a little <laughs> bit different than what they told me in school. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, I can only imagine how many people get disillusioned back then, like landing, you know, seeing it, like going to New York, seeing the, the Statue of Liberty and then their actual life there. Right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> They're just like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, there are there there are some positive things that she presents about uh, about capitalism as well, although she's generally speaking very, very against it. Um like I and, uh, and you know, like she does give a hearing to the, a lot of the sort of capitalist views, right? Like the the views about private property. Like there's that whole thing about the family, right? Like the the nuclear family is like, oh well, when they're in their sort of closed family environment, they don't seem so bad. Right? <laughs> yeah, um, but like most of those interactions end up with uh, Shevek de delivering some sort of sick burn or just like an absolutely devastating yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's yeah. where the, the paragraph ends. You know? <laughs> yeah, it, it's overall more critical than celebratory of capitalism, and uh, like I mean. I feel like this is um, this is kind of off topic, but like you know, the, the the current season of Friends at the Table is like obviously enormously inspired by this book. Um, it's like a huge. This is a popular role playing uh, game podcast um, run by uh, Austin Walker and his friends, and uh, they're sort of doing this comparative society uh, speculative fiction, right? Like, what are these different societies? How do they? How do they work? What are their contradictions? How do they interact with each other? All this kind of thing. There's an Odo figure 
Um, all, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very, very deeply inspired by this book. Uh, but, you know, their, their analog of Uros, it's like, yeah, like, we're going to try to give a fair hearing to it, but, like, also these people suck. <laughs> like, this is, a, this is a shitty society. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I liked, um, she's always been a proponent for advocating for a different, um, like, non, I think what she called boring or lame sci-fi, which is reliant on conflicts being physical and stuff, right? Like, there's, it only happens like three quarters or near the end when anything becomes physical. It's usually a assault on his, like, uh, what he thinks is a spiritual component to himself or his uh, nourishment of his mind and body and stuff like that. It, it, there's no real, like... Yeah, like bullets being fired and stuff like that. It's uh, it's all about the consumption of these different societies. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. This this isn't like a war story, right? Um, and she she very deliberately sets up a situation where war would be unlikely, right? Like it's it's very clear. Like she set up all of these preconditions so that the conflict that does exist is not likely to be like mass armed violence. Although there are wars on Uras, we don't see those directly. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> you should read it. <laughs> it's <real fun>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. It is fantastic. Um, yeah. Is, is there anything else we want to cover before we wrap up? Well, I, I would just say that like, you know, this is a great sort of response to for futures, right? Yeah, like, it is. Um, in in insofar as this is climate fiction, um, like this is, you know, what she says about Anaris is a, you know, very like fleshed out and realized sort of response to the dilemmas that are presented in that article. Yeah, it's um, and like it's it's a it's definitely a vision of like um, which what which category does it fit? It fits it fits the sort of socialism category from from Four Futures. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The scarcity plus plus socialism yeah right um yeah and a yeah like i could see that being a society that works you know like a perfectly acceptable um, yeah it, it works it's not perfect but it works and it, it, it is not the the hell world that is is uh described uh in terra right yeah yeah that would be the exterminism yeah um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you presume there was some phase of exterminism before this horrible dictatorship was set up right yeah yeah it does make me uh, want to read that Hainer cycle a little bit, too, now that I know it's a, a thing. It would be interesting to see where it slots and what nods there are to each book and such. Yeah, um, I think the the other sort of big one is the, the Left Hand of Darkness, which um, has a lot of gender stuff going on. Um, yeah. Which is supposed to be really, really good. Uh, we, we might even get around to it for the show, actually. I've, I've got it on my shelf. That could be fun. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, like, thanks, Fraser, for coming along with us on this one. Um, oh, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So where can people find you online or just any, any plugs you want to give? So you can find me everywhere at Fraser Simons and the cyberpunk blog that I have is just consuming cyberpunk.com. And I think that's it. Pretty much all social media that I actually use is just at Fraser Simons. So if you can spell my name, you're good. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, listeners, you can find us at, uh, on Twitter at GI Unit Pod. 
we're on Facebook as General Intellect Unit, and we're on all the podcast apps. So if you haven't done so already, maybe think of subscribing or um, sharing this with your friends. It's probably one of the best ways to help the show. Um, second best being to go over to patreon.com slash general intellect unit and maybe think about kicking us a couple of bucks a month to help stay alive, you know, um, keep uh, keep the social organism functioning. Um you guys should have a you should you guys should have a blog or not a blog a, a goal on your Patreon that when you reach a certain level you will sing the tiny little life form song from uh, <laughs> T- <Yeah>. TNG. <laughs> we we only have one stretch goal. <laughs> it is that. And it's to live. <laughs> some absolutely absurd um, target. A uh, couple of couple of grand a month. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just have like subsist tiny little life forms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've kind of wanted to add a um, add a, add a like sponsorship tier. That's because it's all this tiered thing, like one dollar, five dollar, etc. But uh, mm-hmm. I want to I want to add one that's like a thousand dollars and just call it the class traitor tier. <laughs> leave, it, leave it completely ambiguous as to which way tre- which way the treachery flows. <laughs> yeah, well, shame shame works, right? There's got to be some rich people listening, and yeah. just like they just, they just look they look at their piles of money and openly weep, and just look for a podcast to throw it at to to assuage their guilt. Yeah, th- th- I mean, just to cycle back to the book, there's that that was one thing that sort of surprised me was that th- we didn't get that that trope in this book is, uh-huh. which is the, the the rich socialite who is um actually a sympathizer with with uh, you know anarchism in a profound way because you know like that is a character that shows up like a hundred million times in this kind of fiction or yeah like an invisible man uh there's a character like that you know it's it's a it's a stock character it was interesting it didn't show up in this book huh. yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 cool um But yeah, thanks listeners for for listening as well. Um, And I guess we'll catch up with you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Bye. Bye.